Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Terry Grant, who works under the alter ego More Ghost Than Man. Terry is a producer, electronic musician, filmmaker, and fine artist. He's also a great conversationalist, as you'll see here. Terry opens up about his musical and cinematic process, and while doing so, led me down all kinds of interesting twists and turns. So now, it's with great pleasure that I bring you Terry Grant. That uh, stylish Yoko Ono shirt. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that official yeah. merch? It is. It's from her label anyway, so I would hope it's official. Yeah. Okay. She got yeah. her royalty. Let's hope so. Thank you for making yeah. time. No problem. Thank you. As I was poking around doing some prep and reading some other stuff with you and about you, I think you'd be, I don't know if you'd be pleased to know, but you might get a laugh out of knowing that when I Googled more ghosts than man, one of the first search results was a study that was commissioned that said uh, women are more likely to ghost <laughs> than, than men. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. All the more research I think I did when I was looking up names was I, I just checked to make sure no one else had called a, a record that before. So, yeah, I, I haven't seen that yet, but I have to admit I don't Google myself all that much anymore. It's probably for the best. It was a penetrating study into the psyche of the modern dating scene. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to look it up. It might be fodder for the next record, right? I, well, the best thing was it was commissioned by like a financial, like a credit website. I have no idea what they were doing, commissioning research on modern dating habits and, and ghosting. Uh, techniques of genders. And the other thing that, that sort of struck me when I was looking at that stuff was that for someone who essentially does everything in terms of your creative output, okay. you, you seem to be like measured at best in terms of social media. Like that doesn't seem to be something that has sucked you in. Is that, I, is that the right reading or did you, did you struggle with it in the past and walk away from it? When you wear as many hats as I do, you, you don't have a lot of time for, for that other stuff, I guess. And I'm old enough, too, that I got to sort of jump past a lot of the appeal of, of I guess, what we call modern social media, like maybe second wave or third wave, all the newer stuff. There's a good bit of get off my lawn in this, but uh, I, I'm not terribly interested in, in two-minute videos that last an hour and then disappear and, or uh, likes or upvotes or, or that kind of thing. And it's, it's exhausting, frankly. And even if I didn't work as much as I did, I think I would find it exhausting. So yeah, I get a lot out of it. You know, I get a lot out of Twitter, but... I, I don't know that the uh, the negatives are worth the positives half the time. So I, I tend to try to be as measured as I can with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the there's a lot of sort of societal repercussions of that. That if we're not already aware of them, we should be, and they're unfolding before our very eyes. Very difficult to ignore. That's a Pandora you don't get to put back in the box, so to speak. It's such a big part of our culture socially now that I don't know that it'll ever not be part of it. You know, the companies may come and go, but the idea of oversharing. If it's fair to call it that, I don't think that's ever going to go away. So you either choose to be a part of it to whatever degree you want to, or you don't. So, In terms of as an artist and the job description of the modern artist, is that a detrimental attitude for you to have? Or do you create the art and not worry about what happens next? And, you know, you were in a commercial form, even though you're making very sort of personal and you're not, it's clearly not chasing a mainstream, but yeah, you know, how, how do you think about it in that context? Did you mean in the, in the sense that am I doing myself a disservice by not trying to be more promotional on, on social media and that kind of thing, or try to use it as an avenue by which to, yeah, I'm honestly so bad at it anyway, that I don't know that putting more effort into it would really do me any good. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not good at that, man. I, I just don't, I don't find my own life. And this is to cast no aspersion at all on anyone who does put a lot more effort into it. I mean, a lot of people are, are wizards at this kind of thing, making their lives seem super interesting on various social media sites. But I, I don't feel like it's worth taking 10 pictures a day of what I do because I do the same five things all the time. I don't know that it's worth cracking 100 jokes on Twitter or, or, or making little videos. I mean, even just the way I'm talking about it, it almost seems pejorative or, or like I don't think highly of it. But it, it's a perfectly reasonable marketing tool. It's just not one that I've ever been particularly good at. And I find that if I put my energy into, into the art itself rather in, than into the promotion, then I'm, I'm generally a healthier 
human being, mildly so. But yeah. <laughs> before I before I leave that sort of topic alone, how do you, if at all, think about your role and responsibility in the marketing of of your work? To sort of ask again what I said before, like do you just create and then it's it's the next guy's worry to get it to market? Or like how do you think about the audience? Yeah, it's tricky nowadays, right? Because you know, as an indie artist in the modern era, you have to wear a, a lot more or, or just more hats than, than maybe uh, people higher up the food chain ever had to before. People on a major label would have a team of people that do P&A or, or that kind of thing for them. As an indie artist, you've always had to hustle in ways that people with more money behind them didn't have to do. And, and that's certainly what social media will tell you anymore, is that it's supposed to be your responsibility to, to sort of be the point on the arrowhead. And that's fine if you feel like putting all that effort into it, but I, I've never been very successful at being my own manager or my own promotions agent or, or that kind of thing. And so I find that it's best to leave that to people who find purpose in that because I, I don't. I, I can't wait to pay someone else to do all of that stuff, seriously. And so when I find people who are willing to do the managerial stuff, the admin stuff, the promotion stuff, it's worth whatever they want to do it because it, it frees me up to do the things that I find purpose in, which is not that. But I, I do what I can with social media to try to connect with an audience or with fans and, or try to grow a certain sense of notoriety, but it's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. So I have a hard time staying focused on that kind of thing ever, especially since there's always something artistic that I'm, I'm working on. It's either a record or a short film or a score for a short film or, or some other thing, or I'm building something in here, or, or there's always something in here that I feel like I should be spending my time on. And my resources are limited as far as, I mean, I, I can tweet all I want and post all I want on whatever, but I mean, that's about as much as I can do with that. I don't know that I have the same savvy for that, that maybe some, somebody who's younger than I would might have. Since you introduced the topic of the multiple sort of media that you create in before I was able to get to it, I'm curious about the relationship between the short films and the music. And specifically, and by the way, I was, I was very self-conscious about asking you sort of anything that was remotely process related until, you know, until I saw the, um, I really enjoyed the making of films that you had up for So Soon the Dark on, on multiple levels. One, because it definitely, for as someone who, who was going to speak with you, it was a good icebreaker to understand that it was okay to laugh and talk and, and joke with you. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that yeah. wasn't 100% clear to me just by, by consuming your art. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't make the happiest, most lighthearted stuff in the world, right? No, but I, I, I wouldn't say, I actually, I wouldn't say that. But I, I, what I would say is that every once in a while, I encounter an artist or their work that I feel as though was somehow target marketed to my psyche <laughs> and um and sort of ethereal ambient leaning evocative emotional music painting film sort of hits that sweet spot for me so i was immediately drawn into that universe but it, it led me to wonder what is the relationship creatively between the music and the film and specifically do you create a piece of music and then say as part of my output i create a short film with it or do you have an idea for a film that you need to have music for? Or is there an absolute rule for you? I'm not sure how the whole relationship really got as strong as it is, except to say that I've been fascinated by cinema and the craft of it since I was a kid. I've always been fascinated by knowing how the sausage is made and what makes things tick and taking them apart and putting them back together. So maybe it was inevitable that I would eventually at least experiment with film and video and that kind of thing. I was super in love with special effects when I was a kid, practical effects and that kind of thing. And so I think it ballooned from there. But in terms of how I got to a point where the, the video and the audio thing, the music and the video became so tightly intertwined, I'm not really sure, except that the more I did it, the more sense it seemed to make. And now I'm at a point where if a project is an album first, there's always at some point a, a few short film or video ideas that pop in my head to the point where it almost wouldn't be complete, like a complete thought if, if those weren't part of the package. Mm -hmm. And then there are other situations where I specifically want to make a short film and then the score comes later. I'm in the middle of one of those right now, actually, where the idea, the impetus of it is the, the film. And then I just get excited at the idea that I get to, to create new music for, for something. 
The process is more or less the same either way, except that, you know, obviously one tends to happen before the other, depending on which came first. But in terms of motivation, it doesn't seem to change much. But I think a lot of my favorite artists and the artists that have influenced me the most over the years, musically speaking, uh, had a very strong visual component to what they did. And they also happened to be the kind of people that dabbled in a lot of other hobbies, if you want to call them that. You know, people like David Bowie and Nick Cave and Bjork and Massive Attack and Flying Lotus and Tricky and all, all of these disparate sort of influences. The, all of these people have either worked in film or have somehow tangentially been involved in the world of filmmaking. And so it just sort of seemed like a natural progression, I guess. Plus, the music I make is so heavily influenced by film scores and stuff. Do the song, I, I, by the way, at the risk of sort of wearing out my welcome in this terrain, but do the songs have themes before the films? In other words, is the, is the film just a visual articulation of, the, of a song's theme that already exists, or does the film impart meaning on the song? Well, I mean, if the, if the songs come first, right, and then what I'm shooting is essentially a glorified music video, generally it'll be an extension of whatever thematic element or, or through line I saw in the music to begin with. The idea for the video will be inspired by however the music made me feel in the first place. And then if it starts, obviously, if it starts as a short film and then the score comes later, the inverse is true, right? The music is inspired by what I believe the, the images need to be complete. They're, they're there to enhance the atmosphere and the mood of, of the imagery and the intent I'm trying to get across to push the right emotional buttons. So either way, one is informed by the latter is informed by the former whichever way it works. But in terms of how the process goes, it's essentially the same thing every time in terms of motivation or, or the way everything ends up being sculpted. It just depends on which was the key and which was the lock. You spoke a minute ago about sort of some of your musical heroes or influences or, you know, your pantheon. Do you have ones from the world of film? Oh, sure. I'm a gigantic fan of, uh, let's see, Dave Fincher, Jonathan Glazer, a lot of people who were at one time video directors who became yeah. film directors, for some reason, there's a, there's a certain visual flair there that I, I tend to agree with. Uh, Michelle Gondry, you know, another one, people like that. And a lot of classics. I mean, I grew up watching adventure films and action films in the 80s. So obviously I have my love for Spielberg and, and folks like that too. But it's interesting to me that so many of the musical influences I have are not necessarily traditionally great singers and they're, they usually are people who color outside the lines, it seems, musically. But when it comes to the world of film, their output tends to be a lot more traditional, or their role in it does. Bowie comes to mind, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, folks like that. They might work with filmmakers who, Jim Jarmusch comes to mind, obviously he's worked with a few of those guys, whose output ultimately seems a little left to center, but their role in it is almost more as like an anchor to reality in a weird way. I generally try not to think about it any more than I have to. I, just whatever feels right, I sort of do it. And as long as I'm confident that, that I did the right thing and with the output, even if I don't fully understand it, I'm all right letting that out into the world. Because I, I don't know that I can ever expect myself or anyone who, who experiences something I created, I don't know that I can expect any of us to ever get it necessarily right away. I don't think you have to, really. I mean, I think it's okay for it to be a little mysterious. It's interesting with Bowie and Tom Waits and Nick Cave. I'm not as familiar with all of their film work probably david's the most but no one would ever mistaken them for filmmakers whereas in their musical creative process they are very much the orchestrators even though and again especially with bowie he was much more of a director and yeah. as a as a musician he would create the environment and sort of let the musicians do what they do so i liken that very much to maybe what what a lot of directors do on set but still that they were never the creative visionary behind a body of film work is sort of fascinating to me that, that, that they didn't translate that. I think you could say the same about Nick, Nick and, and Tom and, and a whole lot of these people. Yeah. They tend to be very collaborative in the music that they make. Right. And they'll create these environments in which a lot of disparate influences, a lot of other musicians with different ideas will come in and they'll just, they'll make a record that could only have existed with that six or seven or 10 or 15 people in the building at that one time. And that's how that really exciting music comes out, I think, a lot of times. And, but maybe, you know, I haven't had the pleasure of talking to any of them about it, but my guess would be that they enjoy being one of those guys in the room for a change and not the guy up front trying to tell everybody what to do. Yeah. Sometimes it could be refreshing to just be one of the actors in the film instead of the guy that has to pull his, all of his hair out trying to figure out how to make everything work. 
Does that resonate for you as something you would want to experience or that you'd want to try doing? Well, I have to be honest. I think there has to be at least a little bit something wrong with you if you want to direct films for a living. I've, I've done a little bit of it, very small, relatively confined projects. And even I was ready to blow my brains out at the end of a couple of them. So it's, it's definitely not a profession for sane people that I would also be lying if I didn't say there wasn't something incredibly intoxicating about the idea. Film is in and of itself sort of like this ultimate umbrella under which all of the other art forms routinely coalesce to make something greater than the sum of the parts. And it's kind of hard to deny the, the appeal of something like that, right? It's almost like the ultimate project. If you can make even a good film, much less a, a great film, I, I don't know. I don't know what's higher on the, on the mountain, right? Where, where a higher spot is to plant your flag, but I, I don't know. The analytical side of me, the, the part of me that's concerned with living till I'm 100 says, don't do it. And then the part of me that routinely ignores that other guy is like, man, I would do it tomorrow if someone gave me the money. And I totally would. The guy that eats too much junk food and drives the car too fast with the headlights off. <laughs> right. Yeah. What about the other side of the camera? Do you, would you, would you act for someone else? I mean, maybe. Yeah. I, I'm sure I'd at least give it a shot, right? I, I would imagine that's how all these other guys we've been talking about probably started. Someone, they had a friend who said, hey, come be in my movie. And they were probably like, oh, I don't, I don't know. And they tried it and was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. We'll try it again. But the thing with acting is that there's so, hur there's so much hurry up and wait involved. Yeah. I, I've got to think that 90% of what they're paying you for is the hurry up and wait. And I have a really hard time being in situations where I feel like I'm wasting my time. Acting, at least in front of the camera anyway, seems like it's 95% wasting your time, waiting for them to fiddle with the lights or set up another shot or this or that. You know, they spend an hour and a half setting up a shot and then you get three takes in 60 seconds and then you're back to the trailer for two hours so they can set up the next shot. That just doesn't sound terribly appealing to me. The money seems good, so that would be cool. But I, I, I don't know. It, it would have to be the kind of thing where I tried it once and if the experience was positive enough, I might try it again. The list of things that I'm not willing to try at least once is, is extremely small because i'll try just about anything but the list of things i'm willing to do twice without getting paid is even smaller so yeah i don't know directing has holds a lot more more appeal for me than acting probably ever did but i don't know we'll see yeah i, I think that that's a great sort of life ethos too. you pair that with a sense of adventure and it's like game on there's just there's it's everything is so finite that I, I, to have an attitude other than that seems like you'd be missing out on way too much of novelty yeah it's the best compromise i found between self-preservation and actually trying to live the fullest life you can you know living every moment with purpose while also not getting killed you know the the reason that i sort of harp on the on on the the film work and thinking of you in the director's role is that despite how self-deprecating you are in the in the process films that you made for so soon in the dark it's clear that there's an underlying confidence and all i mean your music does not sound does not lack for confidence and ambition hmm. and certainly the films don't lack for confidence and ambition but i also i it's it's amazing you're right about sort of the the, the achievement that pulling off a film is just getting it done is one of just so even when i see a bad film i'm like my god they did it yeah yeah <laughs> it generally means there was like a person that convinced all these other people to do this thing. <laughs> Man, and the absolute ballet, the symphony of of people and professions and yeah. just the math it takes to make even a terrible movie. It's insane that anyone ever makes even a good movie, much less directors that continually make great movies. I, I don't I don't even I, I sometimes I can't even fathom how a Scorsese does what he does. Right. I'm a fan of of cheesy action movies, and when I watch behind the scenes of those, and you see how much work goes into making a movie that clearly did not end up being very good, it's it's insane that everybody, first of all, that anybody ever even gets a second chance. But the idea that somebody could make that could tell a great story with all of the things that can possibly go wrong, and in, in something that's two hours long, I mean, that's crazy. It takes me six months to make an album that's forty five minutes long, and I only have to answer to myself. I, I can't imagine having to answer to a hundred other people. Do you remember the 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 first moment? Where, where you saw something on film or a video and you thought some combination of I need to do that or I can do that or I should do that? I remember thinking something like that when I watched Blade Runner for the second time, not the first time. First time I watched it, I was nine years old and I hated it because the, the original marketing for that film made it seem like the continuing adventures of Han Solo, except now he's a cop. And, and uh, of course, it was not that at all. It was, you know, it was basically a film noir. 
And so I hated it as a nine-year-old. Then I watched it again as a, I don't know, 15, 16-year-old and loved it. And it's been my favorite film ever since. So maybe that first time I watched it again at 16 with all of the amazing model miniature and, and the amazing performances and the look and the set design and, and just noir would end up becoming sort of one of my favorite genres of, of film. And so maybe that was the first time I realized the, the particular appeal that film noir had for me. Mm. So that might be it. Um, I can't think of a moment specifically where I actually, in, in a mechanical sense, said, I'm going to buy a camera and do this. But I do remember getting my first halfway decent camera back in, um, oh man, 2014 or something like that. I got a fairly cheap Nikon, something or other, but it did video to little SD cards. And I thought this was right before I made the first More Ghost Than Man record. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try some test shots and, and, and made up this character just in my head and did some really close up test shots with a real shallow depth of field in the garage. And when I looked at the footage on the camera, it looks so close to what you would see on television that I do remember thinking at that point, I'm like, it's possible. I don't know if I'm actually going to do it, but now I know it's actually possible with the minuscule budget that I have. So maybe that's the answer to your question. I remember around 2014, like basically right before I made, you know, the first music videos for that, for that first record. Then of course you just learn as you go because you know, you're going to screw up an awful lot. So. I hope it's not inappropriate to say to you, but the Blade Runner influence, I feel it in the visuals, but also in the music. Like when actually sure. yeah. noir, yeah, as, as distasteful as talking about genre is with a musician, noir might be the closest genre. <laughs> Forget, you know, ambient or dark ambient or whatever you want to call it. Like I, I might just say that's what the music is. Yeah, I'm cool with that. I'm, I, if if you want to say I make music for the detective movies that haven't happened yet, I'm I'm all right with that. You know? There we go. Yeah. yeah. Do your films exist in the same cinematic universe? Do you think about that? Oh man, I I haven't honestly. I mean, I've I've only made two short films, and I'm in the middle of a third right now, and a handful of music videos, and I honestly never even considered the idea that they might be connected. But I've already shot this other one. Shoot, I was going to say I might have to throw an Easter egg in there, but I've already shot it. I tell you, I love nerding out on that stuff where it's like all the Pixar movies take place in the same cinematic universe right. or all right. the Disney princesses actually live in the same universe, whatever, whatever it is. Like, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I can't do the work, but I love reading about it. <laughs> yeah, I can't do much of the work either. And I love reading about it, too. But you mentioned the behind the scenes stuff I did for So Soon the Dark. And I wish we were talking earlier about the limitations of doing everything yourself and, and any obligation you might feel to be better at promoting and using the avenues that the internet gives you for promotion of your stuff. And the one that really does kind of grind my gears is that I, I'm not more easily able to do behind the scenes stuff for the different projects I do. Because people ask that a lot, that they would love to see how that sausage is made, so to speak. And I have to explain to them that doing BTS while you're shooting something is like shooting another movie within a movie. Yeah, And it's hard enough to do all this stuff by myself anyway. I can't also then do actual, like, legitimate behind-the-scenes stuff because I can't shoot two cameras at once, right? The best I can do is take videos on my phone and take pictures on my phone, which is more or less how those BTS little shorts I did for the film came about is I just happened to shoot a lot of... Thankfully, I shot a lot of stuff while I was building the models and I was able to take screen grabs and stuff, you know, from Da Vinci when I was editing. But that kind of stuff takes as much time as actually making the film does. You know, it's, that's why there are entire companies that specialize in doing just that. So I, I, that's one thing that I wish I could be better about. But you, there's only so much that one human being can do, right? And so actually making the, the primary piece of art or, or whatever is, is generally more important. But I'm, I'm hoping to do that level of behind-the-scenes stuff for this new short. And I would love to do it for everything I ever do. It's just that time gets – you just run out of time. Life gets in the way, that kind of thing. Knowing or, or having assumptions about how you work – would you, let's pretending for a minute that the money resource wasn't a limiter, would you be okay having a B-roll crew milling around while you were working or would that make you absolutely insane? It would definitely take some adjustment, right? People ask a lot, like, why, why haven't you asked for more help with the things you do? And, and I said, that's <laughs> a good, that's a very good question. And I think the answer honestly is that it seems to me that the ideas I have are so often kind of out there that. I'm afraid to let anybody else be a part of the process until I get to the point where I know it's actually going to work, which is very often extremely late in the process. Like usually when I'm in the edit, that's when I'm like, I have that, holy crap, this is actually going to work moment, which is great, by the way. It's better than sex. 
But while I'm shooting something, and especially with as odd as things can seem out of context, like I'll, I'll see a final shot in my head, but what you're seeing in front of the camera might be a quarter of that and might seem really weird out of context. And so I think I'm fi- frankly just embarrassed a lot of times to even let other people help me with the shooting. So it would be weird to have a B-roll team there doing stuff. But honestly, if, if money weren't an object, there'd be a lot of things that would be different about the process. So at that point, I think I'd be all right with it. Yeah. I would have a much bigger place to work in and then I, I need to be better about the idea of collaboration in general, you know, being comfortable letting other people be part of that process and not having so much control over everything. I think it would be healthy for me. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. Do you adhere to a routine or do you work solely when inspiration strikes? I have daily routines in terms of, you know, rise and fall and, and that kind of thing, but in terms of like when I make a short film or, or when I start an album or, or something like that, it's kind of just when the spark hits me, you know, I, I need a certain sort of initial spark to sort of be the, the thing that lights the flame and an idea will pop in my head for either, either visually or, or orally and, or a, a theme might develop for what might be a record or a short film. And at that point I'm kind of off to the races and it's just a matter of finding the time and the money to actually make it work. But beyond that, I don't know that I have any kind of route. I, I don't sit down every week or every day and write a new piece of music and, and have a collection of stuff. And then I'm like, well, it's time to make a record. It, usually making an album is something I, it's a mountain I start climbing and then I come down the other side, either with a finished album or a complete mess. Films are sort of the same way. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not disciplined in, in my creative output in that way. I, I don't do that 10 pages a day thing or whatever that writers like to do. So yeah, maybe I should. I wonder sometimes if I shouldn't be more disciplined about that, but movies are fucking expensive, man. Well, it also makes me realize like then how like the B-roll team would basically have to be on call. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. But again, if, if we were, if we were working with that kind of budget where that thing was even possible, then there'd, there'd be a whole lot of, uh, what's the word? Professionalism added to the mix that that isn't there right now could you work in that paradigm well yeah i mean depending on exactly how close to the studio system it got yeah i mean i'm sure i could would i enjoy it who knows i haven't tried it yet but again i'll try anything once yeah especially if if what it affords me is the ability to show more people what it's like on the inside how the process works because that's the part that always really fascinated me as a kid so if I hadn't been able to see behind the scenes featurettes on DVDs and or VHS cassettes, actually, and, and uh, if I hadn't, they hadn't had making of specials on cable when I was young. And I don't know that I would be doing this now because seeing that kind of stuff shows you that it's possible. It, it's it's just human beings doing human being stuff, but creating this magical thing in the end that doesn't seem like any any human could have done it. So that's fascinating. And and I, I would like for more kids to be able to experience that. I'd like for more adults to be able to experience that because. People look at the final product as being this one impenetrable entity, almost like this white ball of light that they can't comprehend. And they don't realize that there was just this linear set of steps that led up to that being a thing. And anybody's capable of it. Anybody has that inside of them. They just have to have the courage to try and fail. The the behind the scenes material in general, like as a as a genre, is so fascinating because it does nothing to reduce the magic. Like it's so amazing how to see effects get made or to see miniatures get shot. It's like, it just makes it even more inspiring and amazing. Yeah, I would agree. Like like deconstruct Star Wars all day long, all day long. Show me how it's done. It's amazing. Especially (laughs) in those early films where they were literally having to invent entire processes because of the, the tech didn't exist and stuff that's still in use today, you know, ideas and systems that we still use all the time, or that I should say they use all the time in Hollywood were invented for Star Wars. And, and other films in that era, they had to invent really crazy stuff and, and think outside the box. And that kind of thing is still going on in the computer world, but it's a little less sexy, frankly, right? When we're talking about computer programs and, and computer-generated imagery. But it's only because it's, it's that much less visceral in an immediate sense. CG has an awful lot of good to offer. And so it's fun to see those behind the scenes, too. It's just a little less exciting to watch the behind the scenes of how somebody created something in Blender than it is to watch the behind the scenes of how they blew up a building that was like one fifth scale or something like that in somebody's backyard. Or, yeah. Yeah. If anything, I think it just adds to the magic of it because you're, you know, again, you're getting to see how the sausage is made and, and then you gain a whole new appreciation for how it came together in the, in the first place. Are you familiar with, or have you seen much of the, um, 
the work that's done like on the the new i don't know if anybody else is using this technique but on the new star wars tv series how they're using the game engines yeah. to that so that that mixture of i guess some practical effects and animatronics plus the the digital room before i saw the behind the scenes stuff on it i couldn't believe how good those tv shows looked and then i saw the behind the scenes and there's there's no lighting it's all natural lighting from the screens in the background it's really stunning it's really yeah, crazy. is that unity or unreal i think it's unity yeah. unity yeah yeah that's fascinating that that works the way it does and that allows them to skip an awful lot of chroma keying or whatever later on skip the blue screen and the green screen most of the time yeah that's great you know they're learning to make these high concept projects on a, a relatively smallish budget and in a much smaller space than they would normally need for that kind of thing. So, Well, and when they talk to the actors about it, to your point earlier, there isn't hours and hours spent waiting around when they want to, when they want to shoot the next scene, they clean up what was ever on the floor from practical effects or part of a model. And then they just put the new projections up and the act, like they, they crank through production. It's really amazing. Yeah, really that would definitely, amazing. I could see that being a lot more actor friendly than the way those productions would typically work. You can also see independent filmmakers now very rapidly getting access to much more either photorealistic or being able to have in, incredibly surrealistic and, and impressionistic visuals, you know, access to visuals that they would have. I mean, if you're talking about a game engine on a screen, you're, you're going to have that in six months if you want it. Like, it's incredible. Yeah, the fact that it exists in the way it does now means we're we're not very far away. It it might be a decade or two, but it, we're not very far away from people being able to put that in their house if they want to at a, a relatively reasonable budget. Yeah, and so that's kind of exciting. Sure. Clearly, so much of what you do is driven by access to tools and technology, just from your ability to work alone, but also just your output is, you know, I want to say technology-driven, but technology-enabled, I guess. As an artist... Where would you have been 30, 40 years ago? Sitting in my bedroom, trying to learn Rolling Stones tunes from tablature and guitar magazines, because that's what I was doing 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 30 years ago would still be like the early days of drum machines and four tracks and stuff like that. So I would probably be making, you know, lo-fi beat tape stuff. It's hard to say, right? Because you're also... We're also setting aside the 30 years of influence musically and, and just artistically that leads you, you know, everything that you consume leads you, it, it makes you who you are at every given point in, in your career in terms of whatever your output is like. So it's hard to say that uh, I don't know that the music would thematically be any different, but of course it would sound awfully different if I didn't have the tools that I have, the technology I have to make it with the powerful computers and the, the, the synths and the drum machines and the programs and the, all that stuff. But I mean, I would still have the guitars and the keyboards and the, the bass guitars and then what drums or whatever that I use. Yeah, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting thought. I'm not sure. Yeah. Are you a gearhead by nature? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm fairly a minimalist when it comes to like collect. I've never been a collector of stuff. I don't think, but and I'm, I'm pretty bad about having anything lying around that I don't actually use a lot. Like even clothes, I don't keep them if I don't wear them a lot. If I have it, it's because I use it a fair amount. I definitely have wanted to collect stuff. I, I probably have more fuzz pedals than I probably should. <laughs> and I've definitely wanted to have a much larger collection of guitar pedals than I do. But I usually stop myself. That same side of me that keeps me from driving off that cliff we were talking about is probably the one that keeps me from buying every guitar pedal that pops up on eBay. I, I have, I would say, a modest amount of equipment. It allows me to get everything done I need to. And yeah, if I can justify buying more, I probably will. But I, I, don't, I don't know that you would call me. We, we'd have to ask some, some actual documented gearheads to make that call because I'm not sure I qualify. I was, I was just curious if it was, if it was a sort of a nature or necessity thing. I and mean, it sounds like necessity, but I don't... I don't... Probably, right? I mean, I, I started out as a guitar player only. And for the first, oh man, 10 years of my musical life, I was really just a guitar player. So being a gearhead wasn't really part of the plan. That's probably where my seemingly addiction to guitar pedals comes from but it wasn't until i started producing which was i mean i was in my mid-20s late 20s when i started producing so that's when the the actual accumulation of technology really came into play plus computers still weren't very powerful when i when i first moved to nashville and pro tools was still kind of in its not in its infancy but it was it was not terribly advanced you know when i first moved to town so the idea wouldn't necessarily have been as easy to do then Computer tech has come so far in the last 15, 20 years that 
it's a lot easier to do a lot with little than it used to be. Yeah. How much of what you do musically is in the box? Just what, how does that work versus what you're, what you're putting in the box? I don't know. I would say it's probably 60, 40 in the box, mm. which I feel like it's probably a higher percentage of stuff going in, like, like, like actual playing of like analog into the computer than what maybe a lot of electronic producers do. I, I don't know. I mean, I, like I said, I started out as a guitar player, so guitar is kind of a big thing for me, and, and I've got a lot of hardware synths that I like to use, and drums, and, and various other percussion instruments and stuff, and I, I like to use that on top of whatever I'm creating in the box to add just sort of an extra layer of, I don't know, depth, maybe, that I feel like I don't always get from just using a bunch of loops or samples in the computer. And I think it's partially just, it's contextual, really, like, I, you know, the things I play on one of the synths you see behind me here or, or the things I might actually play in a guitar as opposed to a guitar sample that I might like are just different. I'll come up with something I couldn't have thought of or I couldn't have thought to find by just playing it live. It, it just adds a, a, an extra layer to things that, that I find hard to achieve otherwise. Another, a, a little more three-dimensionality maybe, yeah. Are you a composer or are you building tracks from riffs and licks and samples and loops and yeah, definitely that latter thing. It's it's definitely more of a building, sort of a collage. I'm throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall and then whatever sticks, sticks. And then I spend the next week rubbing sauce off the wall and trying all over again. But do you read music? Technically, yes, but I haven't had to do it very much in so long that I doubt I would be any good at it right now. But I mean, yeah, when I first moved here, that was a thing. But being a guitar player to begin with and, and being a guitar player in Nashville, you don't really have to read music. I learned to read charts real, real damn quick. Yeah, but reading music wasn't hasn't really ended up being reading music is sort of like for somebody in my position it's like the cursive of you know musical language. It's it's nice, but it doesn't actually serve much purpose beyond school. So, did you ever get the workstation to generate sheet music of any of your work? No, <laughs> <laughs> that would be that that would be interesting. Like like put it through Sibelius or something like that and see what pops out. Yeah, yeah. And then give it to somebody, give it to a oh, piano player man. or something. Oh Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when, uh, well, like when somebody in my, in my line of work or, or somebody in rock has an orchestral version of their stuff done, right. And they have to write all the, Oh God, I can only imagine how terrifying that is. I take back what I said earlier about directing films. That's the second craziest thing you could do. The craziest thing you could do would be to, to make an orchestral version of your not already orchestral work. Yeah. That sounds like a nightmare. Or to, to write an orchestral score by hand. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I'll ever be wired that particular way. Isn't that stunning? Somebody can write like a woodwind part and and strings and timpani and like and they just sit down and do it. There would appear to be some guys now doing that very thing who, as far as I know, didn't start out being that kind of that kind of cat. So maybe it's not as hard as I think it is. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Johnny Greenwoods of the world, yeah. people like that, who, as far as I know, did not start out writing orchestral pieces when he was just a, a scrappy guitar player in a young band that we all love now. But on the other hand, maybe he just, I, it, this is also Johnny Greenwood we're talking about. They don't, you know, those guys don't grow on trees. I don't know. It seems difficult. Yeah. But it seems like a challenge too, which always sounds fun. So do you think in terms of albums and it, and if you do, why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. Is it a generational thing or do you, is it an artistic statement? I, 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 I'm still fascinated by it because there's no, there's an awful way to say it, but what the hell? There's no practical reason to think in terms of albums anymore. Right. There, there isn't in terms of the commercial aspect. Everything that happens after you're finished with the record, it makes zero sense to have made an album. But at least for me, everything leading up to the point where you hand it to the record label, the record as an art form, as a medium or, or whatever we're calling it, still makes a lot of sense to me because it's a complete thought. It's It's a snapshot or a record of where you were in a certain place in a certain amount of time that you can't achieve just by releasing a bunch of singles in a year like a record that i might take a year to make is going to hit different emotionally and it's going to say different things and probably more about me as a person than releasing 10 singles over 12 months would have done I've always been a big believer, and it, it might be a generational thing, because when I grew up, records were pretty much all there was. You know, obviously there were singles that you heard on the radio, but you couldn't go to whatever store and buy the single. I mean, you could buy 12-inch singles, I suppose, sometimes, but, you know, the CD single wasn't a thing. The single wasn't a thing. The idea of downloads weren't a thing and, and whatnot. And so you bought a record, and streaming obviously wasn't a thing, so you bought an album and you gave that thing a chance. You listened to that thing a lot over six months, because it might be one of 10 records you owned. And so the experience of learning to live with 
an album and allow it to be the soundtrack to a certain part of your life and ingrain itself to you in that way and become part of the memory when you look back on that is something that I never forgot about. And I still have that relationship to records myself, to albums. And albums should be more than just a collection of songs. They should, they should be a collection of tunes that, that make sense together and collectively say something about the way you see yourself and the world around you at, at any given time. I've never been the, the kind of artist that thought, oh, I, I, I have 12 songs ready. I guess it's time to make an album and just collect them all up and give it a title and you're done. If some people work that way, that's cool. That's just not, that's not my thing. So I, I think artistically it has a lot of value, but I also wouldn't fault anyone if they completely disagreed with everything I just said. I love what you said a minute ago about it, it, it's the other meaning of the word record. The record is a, is a record. I, I, I tell people all the time, like, I know that time machines exist because I have a shelf full of them in my music room. Yeah. And I can walk over to any one of those records and be transported instantly to another spot in the space-time continuum. <laughs> right. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I like that. Whether it's when you first heard it or what you were doing the thousandth time you heard it, whatever it is, like each record has its own sort of magical power. You know what? I, I, I don't know that it's fair to say that that's the current state of song by song or single, a singles oriented market doesn't have that ability to be sense memory that way. I think the problem is that collaterally we we've created this environment in which artistic output, at least musically anyway, has become so ephemeral in a lot of cases, or at least in this sort of like two device, three device at a time kind of world, listening to single songs doesn't, people aren't willing to give it the kind of time and the kind of attention that we used to give albums because we had fewer choices anyway. Yeah. And so I think it just doesn't happen as much. I don't think there's anything wrong with being turned on by a song. And then every time you hear that song later on, you remember where you were. It's just harder because it's three minutes instead of 60 minutes of your life or something like that. And then you're on to the next thing. So it's just harder to have that same connection with something you don't devote that kind of energy to. Yeah. I can remember being a kid and even a young adult or, or certainly a teenager when I first started paying for my own music and buying a record and not loving it, but saying, I better like this. Like, I'm going to have to learn to like this record because I just spent seven bucks on it. And like, I don't know when I'm getting another record from this band. So I'm going to have to learn to like it. T $10 bills don't grow on trees, man. You know, you, yeah, that's whether you like it or not, that's your Aerosmith record now or, or your, uh, for me, it was Bitches Brew. I, I'm still trying to make my peace with that record 20-ish years on after buying my first copy. But be damn sure I'm going to give that thing a shot every chance I can because I spent my whatever 15, 20 bucks on a 180-gram vinyl copy of it. But I've had a lot of moments uh, in the past where I would buy uh, an album in whatever format, and it just doesn't click with me right away. And, and I would come back to it six months later, a year later, three years later, and all of a sudden... Nothing on the record changed, obviously. I just changed as a person. And my relationship to music changed. And now all of a sudden, it's like a switch flipped. And it's I love it. Flying Lotus first record, I think it's called Los Angeles, right? That was one of those for me. I bought it after reading a glowing review in Spin. And I put it in. And I was already, at the time, a huge fan of beat-oriented electronic music and left-to-center stuff. And I, I put that thing in, and I just did. I gave it like three, four spins, and I'm like, I just don't get this right now. It's just not clicking with me. And so I set it aside for a year or two, and I came back, and all of a sudden, it was one of my favorite albums. I'll probably go listen to it after we're, we're done here, because I can remember what it felt like to, to listen to it and not get it, and as frustrated as I was. And then when I did listen to it, and it clicked, I remember how cool that was. And so now I can go have that feeling again as much as I want, right? And that's happened multiple times over the years. And I think that's a beautiful thing about art is that even though the art itself doesn't change unless it's you know Spielberg or Lucas <laughs> your relationship to it changes because you change as you get older and you get more wise hopefully your relationship to the world around you changes and so your interpretation of stuff changes you know I've had films that hit me that way or television shows or paintings or sculptures or, or photographs it's okay for your opinion about something artistic to change because you've changed and that's the way that's supposed to work that's why art doesn't belong to the artist. It never, ever did. Never in the history of art has art ever actually belonged to the artist. It belongs to the consumer. The process belongs to us, which is why it's important to try to derive all of your happiness from the process, because that's the only part of it that's yours and yours alone. This might actually explain why I'm not bigger on the idea of promotion than I am, because once I actually ship something off to the label or, or to whatever, I'm done with it. It's not mine anymore. And so I almost don't feel obligated to talk people into listening to it or to watching it. 
you either dig it or you don't. No amount of money or time spent trying to talk someone into how good my record might be. If they don't dig it, they're not going to dig it. And it's kind of out of my hands at that point. But the process was all mine. And so hopefully I got all of the purpose out of it that I'm going to get from just having done it. Yeah. If there is a generally speaking around this question for you, generally speaking, how long between the time you hand in a record and when people are listening to it is there? Because I would imagine the longer that delta, the further you've moved on. Three to six months is pretty common, I think, unless something goes wrong with scheduling or working with Michael and, and AD Industries. It's, it's been usually about three months, three or four months. I've had situations where singles didn't come out for a year and a half on, on other labels. And six months might be the average. So yeah, the further away you get from having finished something, the harder it is to then go back and drum up a certain sense of excitement to promote it when I'm already... Lord knows how many months into whatever the next thing is, right? But that's also part of the process. That's what you sign up for when you agree to release stuff at all. The solution to that is just not ever let anybody hear anything. I just bartend the rest of my life. I mean, I, well, I mean, I guess that or mix, master it, and upload it to DistroKid or whatever and move on to the next thing. I mean, there, there is that. Yeah, SoundCloud or whatever, right? Just let it go. And it would, it would be tough to feel into the idea of, promoting or talking about a record the day after I, I finished it, because then I would just be super nervous that no one was going to like it. But six months later, I, I think I've, that fear usually has dissipated because I moved on to something else. You know, That's interesting. Yeah, I've got my new sense of purpose. And at that point, I think I'm just indignant as to whether or not anyone's going to like it. <laughs> so, you, went, you went from being insecure to offended. <laughs> yeah, just with, with, no, yeah, with no motivation whatsoever. Yeah, no yeah. context, no uh, justification. <laughs> I love it. I know our time together is starting to run out, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit about, um, we talked about it in the context of marketing, but I'm much more interested in the context of presentation of your art. My understanding is that you're not necessarily a performing artist right now, yeah. but you were much younger in life. You DJed. It's really interesting to me to stop being a performing artist. Like I understand why the Beatles did it or why Steely Dan did it, <laughs> but in a different era where you could probably reproduce what you're doing, you know, there's no technical limitations that are stopping you from presenting your music in a public setting. Is there something missing in audience feedback or participation with an audience for you? Like, where is that for you? In terms of, of more ghosts than man specifically, I, I think the reason I haven't tried to tackle that yet is because, well, well, first of all, it is electronic largely. So there would be the issue of, of track. I'd have to figure out how I was going to reproduce all of that live, play it all back. Cause I can't actually literally play it all at the same time. Right. Unless I have that orchestra we were talking about earlier. Yeah. An orchestra of NPCs or whatever. So there would have to be some, I, I would have to deal with the technical aspect of how to pull that off. But more importantly than that, I have to figure out how to make it interesting to watch. Right. Because as many shows as I've been to where it's been like one or two guys on stage twiddling knobs, it doesn't get more sexy. It's, it's always just one or two guys on stage twiddling knobs, and I don't want to do that. I want to make it at least somewhat more visceral than that. So I've thought about it a lot because I really would like to attempt to do this live. There's a rush you get from the interaction with an audience that is unlike anything you could get anywhere else in, in life. But I'd want it at the, at the least, it would need to be like maybe a trio, like a rhythm section and myself, and then, you know, a table of stuff. And I would need to be able to sing the songs that have vocals. And, and I would want to be free enough to be able to actually interact with the audience as a, as a singer, even though that part absolutely terrifies me. So there, there's a certain minimum threshold I'm willing to accept as, what, as to what would actually be fun to show up and watch. And that takes a lot of money to put together. Trying to book a tour with an act like that and not to mention rehearsals and all that stuff. It's just, it's a, a it would be a pretty massive undertaking and one that I, as of yet anyway, haven't had the, the time to really dive into. I keep finding other things to do that don't require all of that logistical work. It is something I really would like to do because performing live is unlike anything else in the world. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah. It's interesting because you have, because you are a multimedia artist, it seems like you have all the ingredients to pull off a really compelling production. I, I saw Craftwork a couple of weekends ago, and I know, you know, when we're talking about budget, it's a different discussion. But, you know, four robots at terminals with video screens in 3D, I'd go see that. I mean, it was, I've seen it already a couple of times, but it was, it was compelling. Well, you know, what's funny is the visuals of it, you know, the lighting or whatever's going on behind us is of all of the pieces I have to figure out, that one worries me the least because there are so many different 
environments you can create, whether minimal or maximal, like that sounds, it's more on the, on the latter end, but there are so many different ways by which that could work that, that, that almost doesn't really worry me, especially at, at a small level, starting out when you're doing small club dates and stuff, you're not going to have a lot of options for that. Anyway, I'm not going to be dragging like 800 foot led screens with us in a, in a sprinter van, right? I'm more worried about finding the three or four people who are simpatico when it comes to the music and finding a show that is actually just viscerally fun to watch so that people want to keep paying their money and showing up and seeing it. And that's something and that we're comfortable on stage getting our rocks off and, and finding our purpose in that. The logistics of that are what seem to me to be a little bit insurmountable right now, but it could just be because I'm scared, really. You know, I'm scared to go out there and do that live because there's no shield anymore between you. There's no safety net when you're out there. Like, but that's also where that visceral element of it comes from. That's where that excitement comes from. It's the razor's edge of artistic output is performing live because you only get the one shot to get it right. So it'll happen eventually. I just haven't had the courage, I guess, to do it yet. Somebody told me, I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen it myself, but somebody told me on the current KISS tour, the opening act is a painter. Interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily graffiti art in style, but essentially he's a graffiti artist painting, I don't know, portraits or whatever it is, but like it's, two it's music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre, right? Like, I mean, I, I can imagine from Gene Simmons' point of view, the guy probably makes $500 a night. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so I'm sure yeah. it's economical. Um, you know, he probably doesn't get to keep the paintings either, but, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. Like, and people go see it. And like people, the people I know who have seen it didn't say, Oh, that was lame. They were like, it was cool as hell. Yeah. Good. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah I, that's I, neat. I'm that much more likely to go to a kiss show now. I mean, even though I would have gone to a kiss show anyway. Yeah. So I've never seen them. So thank you. Thank you so much for making time. And thank you for tolerating all of my under the hood process questions. I really appreciate that. Oh, I, I appreciate it, man. I'd, I'd be lying if I said that that kind of thing wasn't fascinating to me too. So. Thank you so much, Terry Grant. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.